chapter 1. Should come up on the screen as well. Uh, Ephesians 1, and you find it on page 1173. Uh, let me read the words there to you. Paul, just the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. We are so grateful for it. We ask that you would help us to hear your voice as you speak to us, that you would challenge and that you would provoke, that you would encourage, that you would wound and heal, and that you would draw us to see Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to start looking at this book, um, Ephesians. And I want to do for a particular reason. Uh, A lot of people I know in the church here, we feel battered with lots of different things that are going on. And lots of people, whether you come to the church here or not, You feel tired and battered and lots of questions about different things. And one of them is the big, big question about identity. Who are we? I was trying to think how to introduce this. And this is the best I can think of. For me, this is the best identity speech I've ever heard. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And if you don't know what that is, you need to watch it. It's just one of the greatest films ever, Gladiator. It's just, that's just one of the greatest scenes that uh, you'll, you'll ever see in a movie. But if you had to introduce yourself, how would how would you do that? Who are you? Who am I? A Scot, a Brit, white, male, Christian, Dundee supporter, husband, father, human, frail, weak, dying, temporal, eternal, happy, depressed. Will I define myself by my personality type or my job? Preacher, musician, student, pensioner, poet, office worker. How we identify ourselves is really important. And what I want us to look at this morning is how we can only find our real and true identity in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, in theory, you will say amen to that. In practice, we have to work out what that means. And if you're not a Christian, you might be saying, what are you talking about? That's not my identity. Well, I think your identity as to how you answer the question of your relationship to Jesus Christ is the most crucial part of your identity. I was thinking of a, of a couple of other um, ways of, of trying to understand this. One is uh, from Mumford and Sons. It's empty in the valley of your heart. Uh, I'll not quote the whole song, but there's a line in that song which says, I'll find strength in pain and I will change my way. I'll know my name as it's called again because I need freedom now and I need to know how to live my life as it's meant to be. I listen to that song, and to me, it speaks of somebody who's a Christian, but who's really struggling and who's backslidden and wants to be called again. I'll know my name as it's called again. And one of my hopes is, as we look at Ephesians, is that those of us who are Christians who just become a bit tired in our relationship with God, 
that we'll hear ourselves being called again, and we'll realize that it's Christ calling us. But maybe from a non-Christian perspective, here's another one. Went to see Anna Karina at the Rep, just absolutely brilliant, really enjoyed it, and made me start reading Tolstoy again. And this is from an early biography of Tolstoy. He lost his mother when he was three and his father when he was nine years old. He remembers a boy visiting his brothers and himself when he was 12 years old and bringing the news that they'd found out at school there was no God and that all was taught about God was a mere invention. He himself went to school in Moscow and before he was grown up he had imbibed the opinion generally current among educated Russians that religion is old-fashioned and superstitious and that sensible and cultural people do not require it for themselves. Now that's in the mid-19th century in Russia. That's the opinion of so many people around us today. It's quite funny because when we had the jazz thing down at the cafe, people would go past and listen, wow, that's really cool music. But I know that there were some people who were invited and they go, wait a minute, is it religious? Because being cool and intelligent and all that kind of stuff don't go together with being religious. That's what people think. Now, Tolstoy was very much in that position, and his identity was that, you know, he was, he'd grown out of all of that. He had no need for religion. He had no need for God. And about halfway through his life, he just began asking questions. Well, who am I then? What am I? And as he began to ask those questions, he, he really, really struggled, and he found that he couldn't answer them. He kept going back to the Gospels. And he said, well, the Gospels are rubbish. But he read through the Gospels, and what he did was he took out the bits in the Gospels that he understood and that he could see made sense, and he put them all together, and he read them, and then when he read them, he went back to the Gospels, and in the light of what he understood, he then understood more, and he just kept going, and he was incredibly drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. And Tolstoy went on to, to argue that you couldn't find meaning in life, you couldn't find identity in life without Christ. And that's what this letter, Ephesians, is about. Calvin said it was his favorite letter in the whole Bible. Coleridge called it the, the divinest composition of man. There's a, a man called John Mackay who was walking in the hills and he describes how when he read this letter and he really grasped what it meant, he said, it was like rapture. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was alive. Well, that's what I want. I want us to have a new outlook and new experiences as we look at this and as we learn to love God. It is the good news of the church, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's very concise, it's very comprehensive. There's a great description of Ephesians, which is my favorite one, which is that it's doctrine that sings. It's doctrine that sings. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I'm just going to introduce you to it through the first couple of verses. will not take long to do that, but I hope you'll see how it applies to us. And I, and I do ask you just to consider just how important and how vital this is, that we know who we are and we know who God is. John Calvin said, the two hardest things to know in the, word, in the world are God and yourself. Well, that's what 
we're attempting to look at. The author, his name obviously is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, you'll find people in the church, let me just say this by the way, you'll find people who um, consider themselves to be academic and consider themselves even to be religious and they'll go, well, we don't know who wrote this. And it says Paul. And most people will look at it and go, it's written by a guy called Paul. And they say, yeah, well, but. And they will write books and books and books about how it wasn't Paul's style and it couldn't have been this Paul and it must have been another Paul or a different Paul. You know, you waste a huge amount of effort, energy, and time. Just stick with what it says. It's very simple. Paul. And who was Paul? He was a Jew who was a Roman citizen. He'd been educated as a Pharisee, which means he'd been educated as a religious leader in Israel. He went to the equivalent of university in Jerusalem. He became a young member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. It's a bit like he became an MSP in the Scottish Parliament. He hated Christians, really hated Christians. He persecuted them. The first Christian that was killed was a man called Stephen, and Paul was there holding the coats, cheering the people on who were throwing the stones. Get him. He witnessed someone being stoned to death for being a Christian, and he rejoiced that it happened. And yet, extraordinarily, he became a believer. God spoke to him, the Damascus Road experience, and he was told, you've persecuted me, now you're going to proclaim me. He gave himself the title, or he was given the title of an apostle, a messenger, a sent one of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.11, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. One of the big problems that lots of people have with religion, with Christianity, with Buddhism, with Islam, with all the different ideas about God is they say, how can we know? How can we know? What makes you think your opinion is right? Why do you think your church is right? And so people back off because rightly they don't like arrogant people and they don't like self-righteous people and they don't like know-it-all people. But you can be know-it-all by saying we can't know. You can be know-it-all by having your own opinion about not being able to find out and putting that as an absolute. Because here's the big question. What if... God reveals himself to us. What if instead of us making up a religion, God does it? And that's the claim that Paul makes in this letter. He says, this is not mine. This is not what I decided. This is not even what I wanted. I hated this. I was opposed to this, but God revealed it to me. It's not from man, and I wasn't taught it by any man. It came from God. Now, at some point, when someone says that, you... Uh, You've got to be quite cautious. If someone comes up and says, God told me this and God told me that, be fairly cautious. I think it's the worst chat-up line in the world, isn't it? God told me that you should marry me. To which the obvious response is that when he tells me, I'll do it. Um, that's the standard answer. But what if, what if God really did speak through the early apostles, through Paul, the last of them all? How, do, how would we know? Well, you would read. You would check it out. Is this the ravings of a madman? How has this worked out over the years? What does this say? 
And when you read the Bible, there was a, a group of us at the membership class talking about the Bible. And we were talking about how you can read it for years and years and years, and yet it still comes fresh to you. These are not the ravings of a madman. These are not the ravings of somebody who's some kind of religious megalomaniac. This is the revelation of God. And what I'm saying to you this morning is, I'm not asking you to listen to me. I'm irrelevant in this. I'm asking you to listen to God. We shouldn't listen just to someone's personal opinion or church teaching alone. But we believe that God speaks by His Spirit through His Word. And so the author Paul, what matters most about Paul, he was a real human being, he had his problems, he had his personality, he had his character, that comes through in his writing. For example, he gets really excited about the gospel, and he gets so excited in Ephesians chapter 1 that he forgets full stops. And if we were to do the first sentence, it would be 14 verses long. He just gets really excited about the gospel. And you can see that coming through in his personality. You can see some of his gifts coming through. But God still reveals himself through that because he takes Paul and he, by his Holy Spirit, communicates the truth about Jesus Christ to us. Peter says we have the word of the prophets made more certain. You don't have to worry. You don't have to think, I've got to go and have a dream. I've got to go and test this. I've got to work it out in terms of my own knowledge. This is God speaking. He's using Paul, but the ultimate author is God. Who's it coming to? Well, the recipients are described in these verses as saints. This letter is a little bit more impersonal and general than some of the earlier letters. Some of the earlier letters are directed to specific situations, but this doesn't appear to be. And he writes it to the saints. It's incredible how that word has been abused and how it's been misused and misunderstood. Who are the saints? The word saint comes from the Greek word hagios. It just means the holy ones. Who are the holy ones? They're not those who have died and then someone's prayed and then there's a miracle and then the Pope agrees that there's a miracle and then they go through various stages of beatification and we all head off to Rome. So let's just pick on poor Brian here. Let's say we're going to have St. Brian because I'm not sure that there is a St. Brian, um, but there will be. And let's just say it's St. Brian. And I know Brian wouldn't appreciate this, but when Brian died and uh, we prayed to him in St. Peter's, which we wouldn't do, but let's say we did that, and then there was a miracle, and McShane rose from the dead or something, and then we would go to the Vatican and we would say, and he'd say, oh yeah, St. Brian from Ulster, that would really work well. That's how sainthood, people perceive sainthood. Or they might just say, so-and-so is a saintly person because they're such a good person. There's an aura that comes from them. They're so kind, they wouldn't harm a fly and so on. Those kinds of images of saints, that's not what's being meant here. A saint is just simply anyone who's been called to follow Jesus Christ, who has faith in Jesus Christ, who's come to believe in Jesus Christ, who is a Christian. So without a hint of arrogance, I hope, I'm telling you that I am a saint. You can call me St. David if you want. Uh, it doesn't matter. You can be, you know, St. Bridget. You can be St. Sally. You can be whatever. But we are saints. If we are believers, we are saints. Now, if you back off from that a minute and you think about your relationships in the church and our identity, the first thing you're thinking about identity is, I am a saint. That's really difficult because some of you have real self-image issues and you don't think of yourself as a saint. 
You think of yourself as a Christian, but you wouldn't self-consciously feel or describe yourself as a saint. And what's worse is you look at the other people around you and you go, saints? They are saints. You look at the people sitting next to you. They're saints? That's what a saint is? And it, it disturbs you. But you should realize that that's how God looks upon his people. And you should realize that that's how we should look upon his people. And when you do that, it changes a lot of things. It changes how you feel. It changes your relationships with other people. These are the saints. They are the faithful ones. Another definition of a, a saint. Someone who has faith or possibly someone who's trusting or trustworthy. Being faithful. Well, that's both. That's what we are to be. If we are Christians, we are saints and we are faithful to Jesus Christ. And we will follow Jesus Christ. And though he slay us, yet we will trust him. And again, that's what we want to provoke and to encourage in one another. It doesn't ultimately matter if people look at the church and say, wow, you're great. Or if they look at us and say, you're all so old-fashioned and out of date. It matters if we are faithful to Jesus Christ. And this is how serious it is. I listened to a bishop on the radio this morning and it was spine-chillingly evil. And that's the only way I can describe it. Spine-chillingly evil. As piece after piece of the Bible he rubbished and he mocked and he abused and he blasphemed. And I felt in one sense really sorry for him. Because I thought, what are you doing? You're taking the holy things of God. You're taking the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and you're chewing it up and spitting it out and treating it with absolute contempt and disgust. And you're meant to be a Christian. There's no faithfulness at all. We have to be faithful to God no matter what. Really interesting being at the Scottish Parliament this week and meeting several of the MSPs and several of whom are Christians and they were talking about what do we do when the pressure around us is compelling us to deny our Christian faith. And the answer is you're faithful. If it costs you your job, you're faithful. You have to, it doesn't matter, you still be faithful to Jesus Christ. And that's what we are called to be in a hostile environment, to be faithful to Christ. We're saints, we're to be faithful. And we're in Christ Jesus. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You'll find this phrase throughout Ephesians. The whole idea of being in Christ. It is an incredible thing to be personally and vitally united to Christ. The body connected to the head. That's where our identity comes from. We are in Christ. We belong to Christ. It's not that we're some kind of religious clone or religious robot. But by belonging to Jesus Christ, the life and the vitality and the creativity and everything makes us not less human, but more human. That's why when Jason's speaking about how he loves the jazz music and everything that comes from that, and people go, okay, well, how does that connect with Christianity? I just quote Steve Martin, uh, the comedian who's got a great song entitled Atheists Ain't Got No Songs, and, uh, which has the fantastic line in it, no one ever sung a tune to the glory of godless existentialism. And that is true. No one's ever sung a tune for that. We sing 
because we've got something to sing about. We don't sing to drown our sorrows. We sing and we make music because of our connection in Christ Jesus. So our identity is as saints faithful. We're in Christ Jesus. And here the identity was written to people in Ephesus. It's important to know a little bit about that background. Um, It's a Greek colony, busy commercial port, gateway to Asia. It was like the crossroads of caravan travel. It was your motorway service station as you're on your way to to Asia or to Jerusalem or the other way to to Spain or uh, Athens or Rome. It was also very religious. It was the headquarters of the cult of Diana, Artemis. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, You can read about it in Acts chapter 19. Had 127 white marble columns. You can go to Ephesus and you can see all the remains of this. Each of these were 62 feet high. They had a 25,000 seat stadium built near the temple in a city of about 250,000 people. And Paul says, you're saints and you live here in Ephesus. You live where Diana has her headquarters. You live in this commercial center. You live in this godless pagan place. That's where you're called to be Christians. And we are in Christ and we are in Dundee or wherever we live. We are citizens in two worlds. And God has called us to live as Christians, not in the 17th century, but in the 21st century. Not in some ideal Christian community that we think exists somewhere else in the world, but here with our neighbors, with our workmates, with our colleagues. And we can do so because our identity is in Christ. Paul wrote this letter to uh, a converted runaway slave called Onesimus. Or rather, he wrote it, he sent it with a converted runaway slave called Onesimus. Because uh, Onesimus, this is a difficult thing for some people, he was a slave. He ran away from Ephesus. He went to Rome where he met Paul. He was converted. He became a Christian. He became a really good friend of Paul's. And then Paul said, you've got to go back to your master Philemon. And Philemon, there's a letter written specifically about that. Uh, lived near Colossae. He sent this letter to Philemon. He sent a letter to the Colossians. And he sent this letter either to the Ephesians or just a general one for that whole area. And what I love about it is he sent the runaway slave with three of the greatest writings ever in the history of the world. I just I, I love that whole thing. So the recipients... As we, as we listen to God's word, we are the recipients. We either are saints or you can be a saint. That's one of the great things about the gospel is it turns you into saints. And we're called to live here as Christians in this city at this time. Let me say a little bit about the message. It's a message that's a little bit different from his other letters. It's pastorally warm and spiritually sensitive. It's not dealing with a specific situation. And most of the teaching part, unusually, is actually taken up with praising God. If you read it together with Colossians, you realize an awful lot of Colossians uh, is in Ephesians. It's prayer, it's affirmation, it's evangelism. Uh, It's a massive call to worship. It's saying to Christians, this is what you are, and this is your God. And your only response is worship. It speaks of a new society. Mark spoke about a new society and the new man. 
He spoke about the injustice of the economic structure. But Paul is much more radical. He talks about God's new society, what God did, and what God is still doing. If you'll forgive the grand term, the whole theme of Ephesians is really cosmic reconciliation with Christ. What does that mean? It just means that everything's in a mess, everything's screwed up, and the only way that the whole thing can be sorted out is in Christ. Things are so bad that we need new life, not just a revamp, not just a makeover. Our society is in such a mess that we need a renewed society. We need new relationships. Behold, I will make all things new. And in that context, Paul speaks about Christian doctrine, Christian faith, Christian duty, and Christian life. Now, that's very important because a lot of us as Christians live with the identity, I'm a Christian, I live in a hostile environment, I myself am a sinner, I'm just hanging on until Jesus returns. Whereas Paul's teaching reverses that. It says, actually, as a Christian, you are rich, you have all things in Christ. You're not hanging on. You've got so much. It's the most radical thing in the world to follow Jesus Christ. You're not isolated away in some kind of religious commune. You're in a position where you turn the whole world upside down. And that's why this letter is about the church. It has a very high view of the church. The church of Jesus is described as his body and his fullness. Now, I know that some of you are so frustrated with the church, as I often am, that we would say to people, don't look at the church, look at Christ. That's wrong. You don't find that in the Bible. It sounds good. It sounds great. But think about it in biblical terms. It doesn't make sense. Don't look at the church. Look at Christ. Where are they going to look at Christ? His stained glass window? That's not him. In the Bible, but they don't read the Bible. Where are they going to look at Christ? Where are people going to find Christ? In the church. That's the point. That should be the point. Paul expects the outsider to see Christ in the church. Jesus expects all men to see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Jesus expects all men to know that we are his disciples because of the love we have for one another. And when you decide, I'm not going there, I'm not doing that, I'm just doing my own thing, and I'm going to look to Jesus, and I'm going to tell people not to look at me or not to look at the church, but to look at Christ, it sounds good, it sounds pietistic, but it's woeful and it's nonsense and it's laziness because people are not going to see visions of Christ. They need to see the reality of Christ in our lives together in the church. And that's, that's part of this identity. Actually, your identity is not who am I. The identity question is really who are we? Who do we think we are? Uh, Steve and I were talking about this just coming in about um, how important it is, the whole idea of community, learning in community, being together in community. That's what the church is meant to be, God's new community. And then he says, grace and peace. One, that's a great aspect of the message that comes over and over again. Grace and peace. The Greeks, when they met each other, said grace. The Jews, when they met each other, said peace. The Christians said grace and peace. It involves everyone. Grace is God's free saving initiative. Grace is what God does for us that when you begin to grasp what God's grace is, your, your head and your heart 
cannot take it in. It is so amazing. They sang Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We'll never, ever grasp fully the wonders of the grace of Christ. Who are you? You have Christ's grace and his peace. Peace is reconciliation. It's, it's, these words are repeated again throughout the letter. Reconciliation between ourselves and God. Reconciliation between us and other people. Peace in our own hearts. The peace of God that passes understanding. That's our message. Peace through grace. And instead of it being just words and religious jargon and waffle, it's reality that people can see. We've got a fantastic message to give to people. What's the link in all of this? The author, the recipients, and the message. It's just simply this. Jesus Christ. I'll give you these quotes. You could take dozens of them from this letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. What are you? You're a dearly loved child. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, I've got to stop there and just say this. If you think that you obey what God's word says so that you can please God and so that you can get God to, to like you, you've got it the wrong way around. You imitate God. Why? Because you're dearly loved. You're dearly loved children. You, you, if you want to say what is your identity, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. I believe in Jesus. I am dearly, dearly loved. Peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Who are we? I hope that we are people who love Jesus with an undying love. And maybe you don't. And maybe you listen to some of this and in between letting your thoughts wander off and drift all over the place. You're thinking all different kinds of things and your mental and emotional defenses are really well prepared and they are well up. But I'm asking you to have the sense, to have the heart, to have the intelligence, just to stop and to say, wait a minute, I don't grasp all of this. Why are we talking about a letter written to a city in Turkey 2,000 years ago? I, I, I'm not sure how that connects with all my life. Fair enough. But I just ask you simply to think what your relationship is to Jesus Christ. Because that's your ultimate identity. Bob Dylan. You know what's coming. I've quoted so many times. You've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you've got to serve somebody. He goes through a whole list of different names and jobs and identities that people have. But our ultimate identity is defined by what we think of and how we relate to Jesus Christ. And the link in this letter is always, for Paul, for the recipients, for the message, the link is always Jesus Christ. By the way, I've been to the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, they sang, the temples are ruined. 
Nobody worships Diana. Jesus is worshipped by a billion people all over the world, and Jesus will continue to be worshipped. Why? Because Diana didn't exist. Jesus does. My atheist friends say, oh, David, we're, you're an atheist when it comes to Zeus and to Thor and to Diana and so on. We're just, we go one God further. And I say, yeah, and you're wrong. Because the difference is, none of these existed. None of them were gods. None of them were Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ does and did exist. And our identity is to be found in him. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.